This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. Hello everybody. Hi, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be here. Um, if not in person, at least as close as could be managed uh, while Hong Kong remains on its three week quarantine regime. I am very excited today to have um, Maggie Enriquez from Krug here with me. We're both going to be talking about different, um, different means that you can use to expand uh, the toolkit that we have for talking about wine really um, expanding our sensory horizons. Part of this, obviously, is to give us new tools for communication, but on a, on a kind of philosophical level, for me anyway, it's definitely about positioning wine as on a par with the other arts. You know, we have uh, visual art that, that speaks to the eyes. We have music that speaks to the ears. Wine is art that speaks to the olfactory sense and to the tactile sense. And I think as an industry, sometimes we let we let a public, a skeptical public push us around and say, look, it's just a beverage. And I think, as so many of us know, that that simply is not the case. There are there are wines that are the equivalent of pop songs or posters. There are wines and, you know, that's that's great as well. There are wines that are the equivalent of Eroica. So we need to we need to become more confident, um, more sure of ourselves as an industry that what we're doing is really as worthy of attention as any visual or um, audio works. So first off, uh, Maggie is going to be um, presenting about Krug and the history of Krug and music pairings, um, which I think is an extraordinary story. Um, Maggie, as I'm sure many of you know, um, is the CEO and president of Krug and has been since 2009. She's also spent more than 30 years as president or CEO of multinational or global companies in North and South America, as well as now in France. So quickly, Maggie, I will hand over to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Sarah, and hello to everyone. It's my real pleasure to, uh, to, to share with you what has been this journey, uh, as uh, Sarah says, of trying to find new ways of enjoying our, our wines, our champagnes, but especially in this journey where I was just looking for analogies to simplify the message, we discovered something that I would like to share with you. And that is an experience that can be, that can happen in any house and anyone can live it with practically any wine. So I would go in the, in the presenting some slides I prepared for you because I think images help us to understand better what we want to say. 
So the house, just a brief uh, little uh, story about the house, because it's important to understand the house and the origin of the house to, to, to be able to, to really uh, understand the composition of the different uh, champagnes the house has. And so the, the story of the House of Crook is a story of this man, Joseph Crook, who arrived in Champagne in 1834. Just to place ourselves, Champagne is, uh, is the, at that time is, is booming, is, is really growing, it's becoming very important, everything is changing in Champagne at that time. He comes from Mainz, Mainz at, when he was born in 1800 was France, and in 1834, of course, Mainz was already uh, uh, Prussia, which is in Germany today. And uh, you have to see, he was he left uh, Mainz already in connection with wine. So it's interesting. He knew that a small grower next to another, a, a very close, would produce two, two different wines. This is extremely important to understand what happens after when he arrived in Champagne. He sees the champagne offer already by that time. All houses would produce a regular champagne every year. And only in these good climatic years where you have an homogeneous behavior of the soil in, in principle, this is the champagne approach, you would then make a vintage. And vintage will always be the selection of better wines to make a better champagne. This is, in general, the approach of Champagne. It's never Vin de Terroir, because in Champagne you don't have Vin de Terroir. It is by area, because Champagne is extremely fragmented, 280,000 plots in 30,000 hectares. So it is the way Champagne has been developed. And you have to see that 1834, by the time Joseph arrived in Champagne, we are talking about almost 110 years more than the first Champagne house, which was Renard. And so it, the industry was well settled. And for him, he was annoyed with the idea of not being able to create a great Champagne every year. So for him, uh, a good house should be able to offer to his clients every year the best the house could produce. And with this, this idea in mind, he started developing, uh, he, he, he just developed one key idea. And his key idea was, well, if I try to understand every single plot as one wine, as one element, as he called it, they called them, and you're going to see where, and he says, and I have a library of very many colors. Uh, from nature, of very many of these wines from different years, I will be able to, every year, recreate the most generous expression of champagne. All flavors and aromas of champagne together. And this is the best I can offer to my clients every single year. It's, I cannot control climate of a year, but this I can do. Every single year, I follow plot by plot as one element, I just built the library with wines from many different years, and every year I will be able to receive the colors from nature and look for the missing colors to create this multicolor champagne. So this is his idea. He developed his idea. He found, he met somebody who believed in his ideas. And by 1843, the house was founded, the house of crew was founded as a result of an encounter with another uh, a house owner, 
who liked the, the ideas of Joseph and invited Joseph to become a majority after four, four years of secret um, ex experiments just to make sure his ideas were, were feasible. And so by 1848, he was quite old, 48 at that time, he's almost 60 today, he was afraid to die, and he knew he was doing something absolutely unique. So he decided to leave everything written to his son. And this is the fabulous small book of the founder that was found for the first time by the grandfather of Olivier Crook. Olivier Crook is sixth generation, he works in the house today. And his grandfather found this little book, which was kept in a wooden box closed for 100 years. And in 1972, the grandfather of Olivier, Paul II, found this box and discovered he was looking for, he was trying to understand why the House of Crook had such a different approach to the rest of Champagne. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different based on a different objective. Remember, he wanted to create the best he could offer to his clients every single year. So you see, he wrote, and here you can immediately understand the philosophy of the house, because Joseph wrote to his son, you know, to create good champagnes, we need to start by having good terroir and good elements. That, that is the wine result of one plot, the plot wine. And then he says something that talks about his obsession for quality. He says, we could have obtained good champagnes by using regular and or even mediocre elements. But these are exceptions on which you can never rely or you may damage your operation or lose your reputation. So you see uh, that uh, at the same time, he says the most important uh, care has to be taken to the different levels of the champagne creation. And then he says something that makes his house so unique. He says, a good house should only create two champagnes of the same composition, means the same quality, no difference in quality. And he says, champagne number one, his dream, this most generous expression of champagne every year. And then he said the champagne number two will be the champagne of circumstances. To create some years, but it will be the champagne of circumstances. So in crew, the vintage is not a selection of better wines to make a better champagne, but it's a selection of wines that better tell the story of that year, or the selection of those musicians, which will better play the composition of this year. So you see, after 100, almost 180 years in, 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 nine, in 2023, this house has many other champagnes, but everything is with the same philosophy. So we have the vintages, we can always offer two vintages with the idea of people discovering how different they are, because they just refer to different circumstances of different years. You have, of course, at the heart of the house, Crook Grand Cure. You have collection of uh, vintage, which is to show the beauty of time on our champagnes. You can ask, why don't we have the collection of Crook Grand Cure? And you are right. Since 10, 12 years already, we're keeping bottles of Crook Grand Cure with the yeast inside for them to become one day collection. Probably it will be in 15 years, but they will come out one of these days. And then we have the Crook Rosé that was created in the 70s. And at the same time in the 70s, 
they had this, uh, the discovery of out of six hectares, they bought 15 plots in, in Menil-sur-Roger. We found the Clos de Menil, Soliste in Chardonnay from Menil-sur-Roger. This is not the most important uh, village for the house of Krug. And Chardonnay is not the most important grape. So the house, Henry Krug went seven years looking for a way to tribute Ambonnet, which is our most important village, and Pinot Noir, which is our most important grape. And this is the way the solist of uh, uh, Pinot Noir all, also appeared in the, in, for the first time in 2007, and it was in 1995. So this is the, the, what we offer uh, to the market. And you see, of course, Champagne number no. 1, it's the most original Champagne of the house. And it is uh, exactly uh, what our founder dreamt and the reason of existence of the house of group. You know, most generous expression of champagne independently of the effect of the year. The champagne number two is the music of the year, is the champagne to express circumstances of the year, as I said. And we have the terroir champagne, which comes from his what he said in the little book, The Elements, with the Clos de Menil, as I said, and the so you see, we have the solist, we have the point, this clue is the point. The vintage is many, vin the three different varieties and many different plots in one single year. And then the Grand QA is at least uh, 10 different years, the different plots and different uh, grapes. So you see, we used to call this from the point to the universe. In 2009, we already were talking. We hadn't found the little book yet, and we used to talk like this. In 2011, there is uh, Eric Bomar, who is an incontournable in the world of wine in France. He was describing uh, a wine with music. And I called him and I said, what are you doing? And he said to me, he, this man doesn't know anything about wine but he knows a lot about music. So I described the wine because he wanted to know, I described it in, with music. And I said, how comes? And he said, uh, yes, Maggie, don't you know, every bottle of wine has its music. And this remained in my mind because we have this solist, we have the music of the year, and we have the music of Champagne. So we said, why don't we bring music? Music, it's going to be, uh, something that will make people, uh, it, will be, it will be easy to understand the house. And so we just call this um, the tasting from the soloist to the full orchestra, which is what Crook Grand is. And we went deeper and we understood that the house has a musical approach. What we do is that every year for us, uh, the, the vineyard, the terroir, uh, the plot, is a musician. The grape, the type of grape, is a family of instruments. And the, the year is the score, you see? And so we go plot by plot, it's going to be one wine. And the sound of the different musicians of that year will be auditioned one by one. We received every year around 250 new musicians. Of course, we know who they are but the score will be different. The sound will be different. And then we have today 150 musicians in the reserve. They are getting deeper. They are getting rounder. When you taste the oldest that has been there since 2006, you can feel how deep it is, how 
profound, how round, how uh, uh, calm, it's like uh, uh, wise. So they, these musicians that are in the reserve, waiting for them, for, for the house, for the cellar master, to select them, to go into one of the creations, they get deeper and they get bolder and they get rounder. And what the house does is during five months, you go plot by plot as a wine and you taste, we taste them for five months. It's exactly like auditioning uh, a, a musician. So this is exactly what our uh, tasting committee does. This is our winemaking team and Julie Cavill is our cellar master. We have at the end of, uh, of the five months about 4,000 tasting notes. Since eight years, everything is digital, so we can follow the profile. We can follow how these musicians are evolving, the ones in our, in our research wines and some others, the new ones coming also. We, we understand how the plot is evolving according to the work we do in the, in the vineyard. And so every year, everything is there to be tasted, to be discovered, rediscovered, to recreate every year the most generous expression of champagne. A selection of the wines of the year with a selection of musicians in the reserve wines to recreate this symphony of champagne every year. Every year is going to be a tribute to champagne. We use the three great varieties and we go all around the region of champagne. Why it doesn't have to be Grand Cru only? Because we go plot by plot. So we go in, in Meunier, in the Valley de la Marne, we have specific plots in Saint-Germain with our growers and they are fabulous. And we have Meunier in all our champagnes, which are not the Clos, of course, but it's always there. So it's always this idea of tribute champagne, of creating a symphony of champagne every year. It will never be the same. 250 new musicians are coming and the 150 are evolving, so it is never going to be the same. It is going to be inspired by this idea of always recreating this fullest expression of champagne. Since 2011, we decided to put this crook ID in every back label of every bottle of crook. There is a crook ID. You can go through Google, through Twitter, through crook.com. Uh, or in an application that is the only free thing Krug has done so far, which is in Apple this year and next year will be in Android. And through this idea, you, that you get the story of the bottle, you get some tips like never drink a good, uh, never taste a good champagne in, in, in flutes, never too cold. You get uh, uh, food pairings, but you also get the music that has been selected or created by different musicians for every one of these champagnes. In 2011, at the 17, every bottle of Crook Grand Cure, and then in 18, Crook Rosé has the addition. Addition means the year, the number of years, the number of creations, the number of times uh, the, the dream of our founder has been recreated. It's once a year, so this means it's the 168th year that the dream of our founder was recreated. You see, and then the champagne number two, will be always a different composition. 2004 is about freshness and luminosity. 2006 is about roundness and generosity. So every single vintage will have, it will be represented and will represent the, the, the composition of the year. So with the time we got connected with the music, we did some experiments where we realized that music was even impacting the tasting. And we started the project 
program that is called in the house of Crook Crook Echoes. So we invite musicians to come to the house. First, we invite them, we used to invite them for them to select the music that uh, they feel is the music that connects with that champagne. And since two years uh, already, almost three, we invite them to come and to create, to compose for every one of the champagnes. And I'd like to share with you what Ozark Henry, who, who knocked our door in 2014 when he saw that we were working with music, was interested because he's a researcher, he's a composer, he's a producer, he's a, he's a professor, he's a philanthropist, and, and he wanted to understand what we were doing. So he's been working with us in, in researching and in, in going further. And I would like to invite you to listen to his three compositions. The compositions he made when he tasted Krug Claude Dominique 2006. The composition he created when he tasted Krug 2006, which is the sound the House of Krug has captured as the music of the year. And then Krug Grand Cave 162nd edition, which is the symphony created around the year 2006. And he composed three pieces of music, and I'd like you to feel how he goes clearly from precision to breath, which is exactly what we do when we taste these three champagnes. So let me invite you to uh, feel what he translated as sensations into music. So you see, this is exactly what you feel, and you feel this translation, and when the music is being played, you will feel something happens in the tasting. And I will explain to you why. So how does this happen? Since the beginning, since 2013, musicians come to the house. Eric, who was our cellar master, he continues to be a, a, a director delegate. He's behind and he supports and today, Julie Caville, who's 13 years worked with, uh, with Eric, is a cellar master, and he's just backing him, her, and he, is, he plays piano. So he understood very rapidly the idea, and he has been critical, help in, in building this program together. So he talks, and now with Julie, they talk to the musicians, and they find this common language, how to translate sensations into sensation into a musical descriptives, and then the musicians will compose. I'd like to invite you to one session so you can see how this happens. C'est un feu d'artifice que les voix aromatiques vous pouvez trouver plein de choses à
So you see this happens in, in every session and you find all these uh, different proposals of music, compositions or composed in the past, music uh, that is there for you to enjoy and listen with a little high uh, uh, sound, you need good sound at home and you can have an amazing experience uh, uh, with your champagne and the music. And so we have gone even further. We invited IRCAM, which is the Institute of Sound in France. And during 18 months, we selected 10 different plots uh, uh, spread it around the region of Champagne, three of each uh, great variety of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and, and Meunier, and four, it was four of Pinot Noir. And we just, for 18 months, uh, the, the teams, the winemaking teams, worked with the engineers, translating sensations into musical brief. And today you can listen to the sound of these 10 different plots. And this helps people to understand what was in the mind of Joseph when he had this idea of creating this symphony every year. And you can feel the sound of a Pinot Noir from the mountain of Rheim South, how different it is from the 15 kilometers up in the mountain of Rheims uh, in North. So this is a very interesting way to feel and understand what we call the, the base wines, which are very difficult to taste because they are just a period of time and they are in general difficult to taste because this is a lot of high, high freshness. So this is the yurt. This is a place where we do tastings with music at the house of Krug at the end of our garden, which is for fantastic experiences. And see, later in 2015, I said, this is too strong. And we went, I said, science must be behind. And as a matter of fact, this intuition was confirmed. Charles Spence in the University of Oxford, she's studying this connection between hearing and tasting. We had a workshop with him with two chocolates. I rated one extraordinary, the other, but not good. And it was music, the different music that was creating this sensation. So because of that, because we realized that looking for an analogy, we discover really an effect, a, a, a something that impacts the tasting. But in addition to that, we discover that we could do good to, to people because we could probably fund some research. So a major decision was made in the house when we understood that there is a physical uh, reason for it. Your brain, the taste is very close to the hearing and the hearing makes that kind of vibration and it helps you to discover new flavors in the smell, even if the smell is a little further, but you may, and for sure in taste, you may discover if the, the music is well selected, you will discover uh, more flavors and aromas you hadn't tasted before. Because we thought we should do something with this discovery, we created a foundation. There is uh, the Fondka for the music, it's since two years already, that invest in research, in art and culture, and in education, and solidarity taking music where the music doesn't arrive. So we have some beneficiaries, and this is a, a young uh, foundation, but with very promising objectives. Just to conclude, I would like to share with you how we see this and what is our vision. And you see, we have a very organic approach into our vineyards. We're bringing our growers with us, and this is to get more precise, more the purer expression of every terroir. It's an obsession to understand the terroir and to bring 
the most precise and beautiful expression of every one of these terroirs. And we are building now uh, in the Claude Ambonnet what will be ready in two years, in 2023, I would say is a fantastic theater with a perf perfect acoustic. It's the place where conditions are ideal for every single wine to be born, for every single musicians, musician to be discovered. And so all our wines will be uh, uh, born there. The whole blend and the bottling, everything will happen here. And this is already in construction and we will have it in uh, two years ready. So you can see, I can guarantee you that in Crook, the best is yet to come. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Maggie. I think it, it's, such, it's such an incredible story of how this slight tweak in mindset, right? Using using an analogy, it's actually blossomed out into this extraordinary program that's really come back and shaped the way that you're producing as well. So I, I think it's a great illustration of what, what we're trying to talk about today, which is bringing, bringing the tools of our other senses into thinking about wine to expand our thinking, right? expand our horizons. Um, so just to come back quickly to the, the beginning, what I was thinking of when I was putting together this session was very much sort of the practical elements, looking at some uh, ideas in the world of how um, nonverbal communication is being used around wine um, and hopefully prompting you with, with these two stories, one from Maggie of a very, a very grand project, a very ambitious project, um, and then uh, my own story, a little bit, little bit more modest in scale, a little bit more just about my personal journey with combining visual thinking with wine and how and how I think that that sort of shift in thinking again can be used for different uh, for different ends. So first of all, I want to talk about some external examples, not my own work um, of wine and the visual world. I think there's a range of, of purposes to which visual tools have been put from trying to communicate as clearly as possible. I put up Wine Folly, who I think have an amazing job with infographics to try and help people perceive wine in a way that's not so intimidating, right? That, that this idea that you can communicate clearly about the way that a wine should taste, the flavors that you're likely to find, um, and really kind of puts an almost a scientific uh, lens on it to the much more evocative um, approach taken by projects like Pont des Arts, um, where they're combining on existing paintings and kind of the aura and the feeling of those paintings um, with the wine that they're working with. And then sort of a hybrid of the two with a brand, uh, I think of like an Australian brand, Hither and Yon, where they invited uh, artists and designers to adapt their logo each year to fit the wine um, in the bottle. So really a variety of different tools, but most of what I saw when I first um, started thinking about this in a really concrete way in 2018, um, when I was thinking about how can I, as somebody with a background in art, think about communicating about wine using visual tools. What I saw a lot of was very um, prescriptive, very trying to clarify what is in wine and sort of removing a bit of the, in, in my view, a little bit of the magic. Um, this also was something that happened through the process of studying for the Master of Wine. Much as I appreciate the, the educational aspect and really the depth to which I was able to go, you do, in a sense, begin to lose a little bit of the uh, magic because it's so much about objectivity. 
right? And finding flavors that are there for everybody and structures that are there for everybody. So when I looked at creating my own work, I went back a little bit to my background. I studied uh, painting at Yale University before becoming a, um, a Master of Wine student, long before becoming a Master of Wine student, and was really focused on conveying, conveying subjective experiences. And so I thought about, well, what, what can I do to bring a little bit of the magic back to the way that I think about wine? So I was really looking for something that communicated without losing a personal angle. And um, collage seemed to be the obvious tool because in a way it, for me, was very analogous to the way that I taste wine, right? We had these little fragments of memories of things that we've tasted once or seen once, text, um, touched once, um, and they appear sort of fragmentary. It's very rare that we smell a wine and we think immediately, oh, this is raspberry and nothing else. Uh, you know, otherwise you might as well have raspberry jam in your glass. And so I thought about you know, how it is that we can, um, we have these sort of hints and moments of things. And really what it boiled down to on some level was the color, the color and the shape, these two very stark visual elements. Um, and in fact, this is reflected also in the way that I structured the tasting for the VIA, for the Vinitaly International Academy, is it's very much about color families and also about shape, which is a combination of structure and texture. Um, and so the, the crux of the work um, really is in these, um, in these two elements, right? In the color and in this contour. Um, with, a visual, with a visual medium, at least with a, with a still image, we don't have um, the benefit of music where you have uh, time and sequence. So I thought about it um, as something that you read from top to bottom, right? So the contour, um, mimics the way that the wine feels when it enters our mouth. So in this particular instance, it's very, it feels quite shy, quite pointed and sharp. It fills out a bit through the middle um, and you really get sort of a structure and a tannin uh, firmness through the middle and then again tightens on the finish. Um, and this contour and an interesting example of how much uh, synesthesia plays into any, any sensory experience Actually, when I was watching um, the film the other day from the 1940s, the Disney film Fantasia, there's one sequence um, in which the line is there. It's sort of a, um, a line that the conductor is speaking to and they have instruments playing and the, the line sort of wobbles out and creates all of these fascinating contours that reminded me so much of my own contours that I, that I was creating in, uh, in my visual tasting notes. I think Again, colors, colors, lines, it's all, um, it's all different uh, tools of sensory expression that, that span between different, uh, different senses. Um, so one of the first ways I put this to use um, after having sort of built it up on Instagram, not really sure what to do with it, um, was working with regions to talk about regional styles um, and the flavors that one could typically and textures and structures that one could typically find in certain wine styles. So I worked with uh, Van de Bourgogne. I'm working at the moment with the Rhone Valley, um, but I've worked with um, wine of Spain, um, Barossa, the Barossa Valley, um, just to try and create images that reflected a regional style more so than, a, than an individual wine. Um, another, um, a further um, 
development, I guess you'd say, was that I tried um, for a while with an online retailer, um, creating images that related to very specific wines um, that I would be sent to try. And for this, because we were focused increasingly on fine wine, um, I moved from a, from a space where I was creating sort of a visual diary of every wine that I was tasting to really focusing on experiences I was getting and single instances I was getting from tasting one wine. And so I found that I was moving away gradually from the sort of generic fruit, uh, generic fruit imagery, generic um, spice imagery, more towards textures and increasingly towards these little hints of, of shapes and colors, um, sometimes more recognizable as fruit and, and other um, aroma descriptors. But really, again, reflecting how in that moment in time, um, it's always these kind of fragmentary moments of, of memory. Um, then increasingly, as I started to do more um, philanthropic projects, so in this case, it was an auction that I put together with Gelabini uh, Romani, um, where we looked at Italian icon wines and really thinking about wines that have deep meaning um, for the region or even the country where they come from. So the one on, that you see on the right is uh, Biondi Santi uh, Riserva Brunello, being a wine that sort of birthed um, an entire genre, we can say, or uh, Gran Lucia is the one in the middle from Aldo Conterno. And so increasingly, as I was focused on these fine wines, on these iconic wines, I began to delve beyond the momentary experience of tasting the wine and thinking more about what is it? What are all of the thoughts that we're having when we're tasting wine? So rarely is it just about the sensory experience. It's also understanding the history, understanding the context, the, the personal history that you have with the wine. Did you know the winemaker? Have you had conversations with them? And trying to start to reflect some of those elements in each of the images. Um, in the case of the Biondi Santi, that, that mechanical wheel, just how um, the wine has sort of has evolved through a period of increasing mechanization um, in winemaking and yet has remained so close to the land also. So it started to it started to be more than just about the momentary sensory experience and more bringing storytelling back in through the visuals. Um, now, communication is is one way that these uh, that these tools have been used. Sometimes um, in my own work, writing for magazines. So here, um, the look a little deeper is an article I wrote about um, Central European wines um, for Tatler, where I'm the wine editor. Um, but then also, again, it was these iconic fine wines that people, a number of magazines, chose to place on the front of the magazine. In some cases. It, even pe people would be seeing, knowing full well that people would be seeing these images and not necessarily knowing um, right away that, that it was about wine. And I thought creating this, this wonderful um, moment of discovery when people realized what it was about. And I think creating an equivalence um, in a way between um, the position that fine art, this very vaunted position that fine visual art holds and and wine, which increasingly um, we're beginning to understand is not um, is not any lesser um, than its visual and audio counterparts. Finally, um, a project that I um, started three years ago and that I think is 
in, in some ways, the apogee of my work, um, combining visuals, but also here tactile sensations. Um, so it started from a series of images that I created around wines um, related to this idea of the natural elements. Um, so for me, the elements was a way about thinking about wine that in some ways is slightly reductive, right? It, it reduces um, all of the complexity into a single idea, but in some ways reflected a lot the way that I saw people um, in the market, particularly um, in China in my research thinking about wine was in terms of these sort of um, vaguer terms, freshness, um, mellowness, fruitiness. Um, and I connected that back to the elements. Um, and so I started making these visuals. What would, would my visual tasting notes look like if they were about expressing a particular element rather than necessarily a wine? And this is the one that you see on the left for water. Um, and it was with the idea of creating glasses, wine glasses that would help bring out that element in the wine. So in this case, water, um, making any wine that was served in that glass feel fresher, more delicate. Um, and I realized that it starts actually from the visuals, right? From the moment we look at a glass, we have an idea of what, of what something is going to taste, uh, taste like based on its color, but also its shape. Um, and then it's the sensations, right? It's, um, we found that there was a very important difference between feeling a straight surface on your lips as you are pouring wine into your mouth versus a rounded surface, the lip um, that you get on the, the fourth one from the left, the earth glass. Um, I think relating, in fact, Maggie, to, to some of Professor Spence's research um, that I saw on chocolate that where the ones with the straight corners seemed more bitter and the ones with the curved corners were sweeter and um, more gentle feeling. Um, and we took this to its logical extreme. So it was this combination, both of the visual sense and the tactile sense to actually try and impact um, in a meaningful way um, the, the experience that you have tasting a wine out of glasses. Um, so I'm sorry, I know we are supposed to have time for question and answers. Um, we ran a little bit over, but if there is just one that somebody would like to like to pose at this point, um, we're happy to take it. There is a nice comment, uh, and I and I completely agree, and I and I, I support so much the the work that Isara is doing, because it's a way to take people off the rational rationalization of wine. Wine is there to give you pleasure, and whatever we produce and create is there to give you pleasure. So you are the master of your pleasure. And it's so interesting to focus into sensations because when you focus into sensations, you forget about rationalizing. And yes, it is music is universal and it has helped us enormously to make people understand the house. But the experiences of tasting with music, and if you had heard what I said, you can do it. You can try to, to, to look what is the music that seems to be the one that goes with that. Uh, wine that you're having it doesn't have to be Kruger, and uh, and and you will find that if you taste it with that sound or music you selected, and you can feel more flavors, more aromas, your selection is good. You can even do a contest with some friends, and it can be so fun. And at the end, people are really paying attention to the sensations, and I think this is what the whole idea is about. Absolutely. It is that empowering of the individual, right, to make their own choices. 
that was the thing with the glasses. So we did, we said, you know, there are universal glasses, but it's really about creating the experience that people want for themselves, right? People like wines that are fresher, right. or they like wines that are fuller. And it's really essentially about removing this idea of objectivity, right? And right and wrong. And this is the perfect one for this. And, and just saying this creates the experience that you individually want to have. Exactly. So. Well, great. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you very well, much. Thank you all so much. Thank you for, for your nice. attention, everyone. Um, Thank and you. hope to see you all soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.